welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 31. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I'm on holiday, so I'm bringing you the best of compilation and some of the best interviews of the year. On this week's show, I'll talk to industry experts about their process, how they got into the industry, and any tips they might have for people looking to get into games. So it's a little different this week, but let's get into it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. This week I'm on holiday and uh, I'm travelling around Ireland and Scotland, so it's a little bit different this week. I'm going to be taking a look back at some of the best interviews I've conducted during 2019, talking to people like Alistair Beckett-King, creator of Nelly Kutalot, Dave Gilbert from Wadget Eye Games, Matt Dabrowski, the creator of Streets of Rogue, and Z from Serenity Forge. So I'm super jealous this week. I'm sure many of you are playing Control and Astral Chain as uh, two big releases. And as the summer winds down and the leaves are starting to fall off the trees, well, the games are starting to come out to play. And uh, yeah, there's two really, really good releases there. So I hope you're having fun with those. But yeah, a little bit of a different show this week. I'm going to be looking back at some of the best interviews of 2019 while I'm on my holidays. But I will be back on Sunday the 15th of September 2019. So looking forward to catching up with you then. So first up, I spoke to Alistair Beckett-King and I asked him, what is your approach to designing games? Well, I, obviously, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, that should be obvious. And I need to say that at the, at the top. Um, I... I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a comedian. Uh, it, it, I was going to say by day. It never happens during the day. Or, well, it hardly ever happens during the day. I'm a comedian by night, I suppose. Um, and uh, by training, I'm a filmmaker, so I went, I went to film school. And what I'm saying is I'm very unsuccessful in a range of different media. So you, you name it, um, I have done it to a moderate level. And what i'm trying to do is bring together different things that i'm interested in and do them as well as i can so you know so so nelly has lots of elements of comedy in that and when i do stand up comedy uh, i'm introducing bits of animation uh, you know uh, live action animation i've done a, a live action video game uh, before where you know the audience get involved and create a character and then we have an adventure and I, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know that all of these things interest me, and so I'm going to sort of mash them together and do them all as well as I can. So that, that's, <laughs> that's my approach. It doesn't sound very considered, but in my defense, I didn't know you were going to ask that question. <laughs> and this, is like when, this is like my dad says, what, what's going on with your career? And I have to go, oh, well, I'm trying my best. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. You mentioned before the game was kickstarted, um, and I was wondering how um, how was that sort of process for you putting, I guess, putting something out there, and um, you know, watching watching the kind of donations come in. It was great, actually. It was I, I've kickstarted a few projects since then um, because I, I help organise uh, an, an event called Adventure X, which is uh, a, a London-based event dedicated to narrative-driven games. And I, uh, for, for the last few years, I've helped with the fundraising, which has been Kickstarter. Um, but Nelly was my first experience of doing that, and um, you know, I, I look back on it with um, a, a lot of warmth. You know, I think the pitch video I did. Though, uh, you know, there are things I would do differently now, but I think it was a very good video overall. It really explained what the what the game was and it really it really sold people on it and the sense of humor in it. And what shocked me is that suddenly people began to be cheerleaders for my game, people who'd never seen it and had never heard of the freeware game I made. They saw the pitch and they got really excited and they tried to get other people to support the game. And, uh, you know, and I, you know I, I wasn't aiming for absolutely tons of money. I wasn't making tens and thousands of pounds. I was just looking for enough money for me to work on it for a year and a half or two, uh, which I think became two and a half years. But, hey, it's Kickstarter. What do you expect? But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but the fact that you've got, um, if, if it goes well, you've got a community of people who really care about your project can, can be great. Um, it can be difficult to handle, and I think a lot of people mishandle it. If you piss off your your backers, and that's that can happen, um, you can you can lose a lot of goodwill. But I think the the way to avoid that is just is just being honest with people because everybody knows that games are hard to make. Games are really hard to make, uh, and nobody makes 
bad games on purpose. I don't think anybody makes a bad game on purpose. And nobody makes mistakes on purpose. And all, but all of these things, all kinds of problems will come up and changes will happen while you're making a game. And I think the, the best thing to do is be as, uh, as, as honest and open with the people who've supported your game. Because they're the, they're the, they're, I suppose they're the producers in a way, uh, a, a, a conglomerate legion of producers. Um, and just, just let them know what's happening. You know, that we went through lots of changes and that we, we delayed the game and, uh, and what we delivered was not exactly what we said we were going to in some ways. And for the most part, people understand why we made those decisions and are, and are happy with it and, in fact, supportive of it, which is really nice. And um, before you made um, Nelly, um, the, both the Foul Fleet um, and uh, Spoonbeaks Ahoy, did you play a lot of adventure games before that? I played almost exclusively adventure games for for years. I was I was an avid adventure gamer, and to the ex, to the exclusion of other games for a long time, uh, because it around the sort of the the turn of the century, um, around that time, you know, I, that was the time when we, everyone was talking about adventure games were dying. The the switch was from two D to three D, and very few adventure games successfully made a, a, that jump. Uh, although there's a few classics from the early 2000s, like um, uh, oh, 1999 was the longest journey, I think. But still, it belongs to that era. There's a, there's a few really great games from that era. But it was a really hard time for the kind of games I liked. And I resented the other games. I resented the action games and the, the hideous low-poly action games where people were leaping about and shooting things and nobody was having a story and there were no jokes and there were no, there were no puzzles. And what happened is... Mainstream action games learned all the all the secrets that adventure games had had about the fact that characters and stories are one of the reasons that people are playing these games, and we're playing them not just to shoot things off of other things, but to find out what happens next in the story, and to meet people, and to to have experiences and and explore worlds that aren't like the the world we live in, and. I think it was I sort of accidentally. I think I bought Morrowind, the Elder Scrolls game, for for a pound from a charity shop, and it was um, to to date it was the the best value I've ever got on a purchase because the amount of entertainment I got for that one pound is in vastly in excess of what of what the pound was worth because I think Morrowind is a great game. Um, the graphics are very dated now, but I think it's a great adventure game, even though it's principally an RPG because it's it's got a wonderfully detailed world. It's got great writing, it's got s stories, but it also has combat and crafting and uh, alchemy systems and all kinds of stuff I'd never had any experience of, and I was terrible at it, and I probably still am terrible at it. But it was just this vast game that made me realize, oh, the thing that I like about adventure games exists in loads of other genres as well. And now, so now I'm really keen to, you know, I, I, I play things like the, you know, the Witcher series and um, lo lots of indie games that take uh, th things like Undertale, which take um, uh, a non-obvious approach to to narrative. You know, you're playing Undertale as a kind of retro RPG aesthetic, but what you're experiencing is is very very story driven, and I really love it. So there's so now I have a much more Catholic, um, not in the religious sense, but a much more holistic uh, approach to playing games than I did when I was younger. And the, the the kind of explosion of indie games you kind of touched on it there over the last few years has been has been fantastic, um, and uh, the opportunity from kind of going from someone who plays adventure games to transitioning from someone who makes. Uh, adventure games how how did that kind of um how did that come about well it's a funny thing because i know i know lots of people who are who have who have done that and gone you know uh, talking about people who i meet at adventure x like um you know dave gilbert of wagit i who um who started out making you know as a hobbyist making games and was pro probably the first people of the people i knew to start actually turning it into a, a real career and then actually turning it into a proper career and then um and then this year releasing um unavowed which it was uh, heralded by many as as the best adventure game of the year or the best adventure game for years and it's it's really nice to see um writers and developers like him go on that journey uh, 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 ahead of the rest of us 
Um, but but also lots of people make make little games, uh, you know, like I do, where it maybe it's never going to be some you know the someone's main source of income. Maybe it's always going to be a sideline. But that's that's where lots of interesting creative work happens, I think. And then every so often, someone will hit upon something absolutely brilliant, uh, and it'll it'll launch them to some new level of uh, indie stardom. But but that doesn't have to happen to be able to create good work and be able to actually make some money out of a game. It's really nice that you can that, that a cottage industry is possible now thanks to um, distribution systems. With however many flaws they may have, it is possible to make and make at home with a couple of people a game that you can then sell and make a living out of. Which was the case in the early days with the Spectrum, where you'd go around with a box full of tapes selling your games. And it's possible again now. And I think that that's much richer than it was during the bad old days of the, the 2000s where nobody would publish anything unless it was a 3D shoot 'em up I'm, I'm being unfair to the early 2000s. But it's, but it's great. Uh, and it's very exciting. And, and this is why I get, I get very frustrated with people who, um, who, who either think that adventure games are dead or haven't played any adventure games since the 90s because there's loads of great adventure games. We are living in the golden age of these games. They're better now than they were then, and they've solved all of the terrible design flaws that those games had or many of the terrible design flaws that those games had. And uh, could, could you give us a few examples of your favourite adventure games? Ooh, um... So, so the Monkey Island series is is, is obviously uh, 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 the the holy grail of the adventure game. It's it's dark and spooky as well as funny and lovable uh, uh, and and vast and full of a, a rich detailed world. It's you know it's it's like being inside a Disney movie but better. It, it's it's adorable. Um, I'm a huge fan of the the Mist series. If we're still on old games, uh, I love Mist and Riven. I was really impressed impressed by Abduction, which was the the, the recently kickstarted game, uh, which has all of the f- the feels uh, to to use a, a colloquialism has all of the feels of a, a, a of a Mist game, but with um, absolutely beautiful, bang up to date three uh, D graphics that look fantastic. Uh, that was absolutely lovely. What other ones have I really enjoyed recently? Obvi- obviously, I'm a big fan of Dave's Wind Your Eye Games. Oh, this is horrible because uh, uh, by not including people, I'm going to offend friends <laughs> by not mentioning their games. So the list is either going to have to be hundreds and hundreds of games long or very short. Oh, sorry, I've, I've just remembered. Uh, I haven't remembered. Rachel, who is the real-life Nelly, just poked me in the back to mouth the correct answer, which is that one of the best adventure games I've played recently is uh, the Return of the Obra Dinn, uh, Lucas Pope's game. Uh, and I don't know him, so he's not a friend, so I can't offend or please him by saying that. Um, and that was uh, just one its just one of the best detective games ever made. Uh, you, you get to properly be a detective. Uh, it, it's retro and it's contemporary. It looks like an old Mac game, but it's, it's in 3D. Uh, it's one of the most well-tuned games I've ever played, as well as being full of atmosphere and really fun. And it, it was it was really good um, because I think he, the previous game to that that he made was Papers, Please. Mm. And it, it kind of demonstrates the what we were saying before in, in that um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's sometimes, the, you know, the the one man outfit or the, the the one person outfit that can um sort of tap into a a, a new sort of type of creativity you know if yeah it, it's a it's a guy stamping uh, immigration papers i believe you know uh, yeah and he sort of I, as far as i know invented a new genre there the sort of the admin <laughs> adventure game um and um i mean i think he's i mean he's prob- probably obviously a genius which is very annoying especially since he does all of the artwork and um, and music i think it's very unfair when people can draw and do music because i'm i can't do music at all so i really resent i really resent that quite a lot but but, but my resentment is uh, is is calmed somewhat by the fact that his games are very very good and um so as well as well as a game designer um an animator and uh, you mentioned you're a comedian as well, which which really comes across in the writing in uh, Nelly Coutelot. I, th- I think the writing's fantastic. It, it's it's brilliant. And uh, so you're a comedian by night. Um, have you got any uh, shows coming up soon? 
Uh, I do, actually. I'm off to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is a, 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 a tiny little uh, quaint arts festival, uh, the largest in the world in Edinburgh every year. And um, I am one of the, I was going to say millions, but it is literally thousands of, of shows going on there. Um, so I have absolutely no right to demand an audience. Um, but if you're there, you can come and see me do a show called The Interdimensional ABK at uh, 10 to 7 in the Pleasance Dome. And in the Jack Dome in the Pleasance Dome it is a, a very fun comedy show. It's a stand-up comedy show. Uh, where I pretend to be from another dimension and uh, I do stand-up about what it's like living in this world, the B timeline, which is slightly more rubbish than the world I come from. <laughs> and uh, what, what date's that going to be on? Uh, it's on for pretty much the whole of August. So it's on from, like I think, the 31st of July to the 26th of August. So it's, it's uh, apart from the 19th. So I'm there pretty much for the whole month. Anybody is around Edinburgh... Uh, I have long red hair. I'm pretty noticeable. If you see me walking the streets, come up to me and get a flyer or something like that. So it's it's really good timing with the, the launch of uh, Nelly Cootalot today on Nintendo Switch. You get that out of the way and yes. then uh, pack your bags off to off to Edinburgh. Now, now, yes, now I can relax and, and go and uh, be uh, humiliated on a nightly basis in front of uh, critics. And the thing, the thing with Edinburgh is it, it's, it can be absolutely lovely and it can be absolutely miserable. It's like, it's like that, the comment section of Steam, though. You can have a room full of people laughing and then you can have an elderly Italian couple who don't speak English and have bought tickets by mistake with their arms folded in the front row. And all you will see is, is that elderly Italian couple in the front row. And you will you will kick yourself until you can get them to laugh. And if you can't get them to laugh, you will go home sad because because comedians are pathetic people is what I'm getting at. <laughs> so that was me talking to Alistair there, and it was a fantastic interview. And uh, I hope Alistair, you had a fantastic time at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Next up, I spoke to Dave Gilbert. And I asked him, how did you get into the industry? How did I get into it? Oh, well, uh, I would say the origin isn't the happiest story. Uh, I was, it was 2001. It was September and I live in New York. You know what was going on back then. I was, um, I had been laid off from this awful corporate job and I was, so uh, that all happened. I kind of was, you know, obviously thinking a lot, feeling a lot of feelings and was trying to find a way to vent and just sort of work my way through it creatively. And I discovered Adventure Game Studio and I made a little game in the system and I put it on this forum, uh, the Adventure Game Studio forum, and people seemed to like the game. So I made more of them. And about five years later in 2006, I decided that I enjoyed it too much to do anything else for a living. And I thought of, uh, well, I've, I have money saved up. I'm going to try selling them now. And I did. Uh, released The first game I sold was a game called The Shiva. And I've been doing it ever since. It's now uh, 13 years later, and I'm still doing it. Do you have any advice for aspiring game developers? Um, I will say start small, if you can. I, I mean, I, I always hate this question because... All of my advice is 13 years out of date. As I know what I did, I started small and kind of organically grew. Um, but that was like 13 years ago when there were so few games available. Uh, mm-hmm. And the indie scene was very, very small. So what worked for me back then um, doesn't necessarily work now. And so I, I never know what to say. I will say that like social media is very key. Like make sure if you're not talking about your game – start talking about your game. Like you need, you, if you need to be excited about it and make that infectious. Um, and cause people can, people can see insincerity. And if you're insincere, like no one's going to believe that no one's going to like want to, um, be involved with your stuff. So you definitely need to sell yourself a lot more than you did back when I first started. Um, so, and above all, you have to love what you're doing. I would say love what you're doing because if you don't, you know, what's the point of doing it? Well, that, that's, that's great advice. Um, and you, you touched on it there and the games industry, is, it's changed so much over the last yeah. 
five, I mean, five years um, with the emergence of um, things like um, streaming video games, uh, YouTube and Twitch, uh, etc. Um, what, what has the biggest change been um, that you've seen that's kind of improved your life as a game developer? Ah, the biggest thing that's improved my life. That's a good question. Um, in the last five years or just in yeah. general? Or just, um, yeah, just in general, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the fact that I, uh, Twitter is like the best thing for marketing. I just tweet about something and like I can just push stuff on Twitter and usually the word gets out uh, because I've kind of organically grew you know, my followers or whatever you call it um, over the decade I've been in business. And so at this point, like it's the best way to reach the fans and to kind of reach more fans. So um, social media and that kind of stuff has been a huge boon for me and being able to to do what I do. It's just so great that I can just, you know, tweet something and then like PC Gamer writes about it. You know, it's insane. I did a jam game about two months ago and I wrote about it on Twitter and like, yeah, PC Gamer wrote about it. Like that never happened. Um, that never <laughs> happened before. Stuff like that. Like, so I I love that. Um, that has been a huge boon for me. The fact that it's the barrier to entry is a lot lower, but the sheer amount of competition is significantly higher. So there, there's also that it's a double edged sword. Like when I first started the, the difficulty was getting on steam. Like it was getting noticed and, and getting on steam was like the hugest, like the biggest hurdle. Once you were on steam, like before, like 2013 or so if you got on steam that was like you know you were set because you were on that front page of steam for like several weeks and you were set now it's easy to get on steam but the hardship now is to get noticed on steam so like same coin different side i guess um so with every like with every leap forward in terms of like lowering the barrier to entry, there's always a step backward because, you know, the, the easier it becomes, the more people are doing it. So now like, um, the fact that I, I'm, I'm fiddling with unity now and I can, I was able to make a 3d game in, um, in unity for the jam in two weeks is amazing. But that also means that anyone else could do it too. <laughs> and so I'm competing with them. Is, is there anything out there at the moment, be it uh, another video game or uh, something else in entertainment um, that, that inspires you? I mean, there's various authors that I like, and just the way they craft stories has always been a huge inspiration. Uh, someone like Lawrence Block or Jim Butcher or Terry Pratchett. Um, I kind of adore the way they, they approach characters and stories and just the way they structure things. Um, it's hard to say. I, I've been kind of very... Um, there's a few uh, number of narrative game, games I played over the last year. Um, I kind of got into um, a bunch of these narrative-based games like Oxenfree and Gone Home and Firewatch, and I've been playing them. And what's sort of fascinating about them is is how they take all the rules that I've written for myself and they set them on fire. Like they just break all of the rules that I've made for what makes a game good, and the games are still incredibly engaging. And seeing how they break all those rules has been kind of amazing. And so that's been uh, kind of fascinating for me and seeing how I kind of can work that into my own work and, uh, and seeing what I can create from that. Do you have uh, much time to play games these days? I try to. Um, a few hours maybe at night if uh, I'm feeling up to it after uh, we put the kid to bed. Um, I, I still go through games. I just go through them a lot slower than I used to. I'm currently playing Subnautica. And I'm digging that one. It's uh, what I love about it is that it's a um, kind of open worldish crafting survival game, but it's handcrafted. Like there is nothing procedurally generated about it, which I, I really like um, because when I find something, it it feels like an experience that was created for me, and I'm I enjoy that a lot. Um, have you come across uh, the Outer Wilds at all? I hear it's really good, but I yeah. have not. I've uh, haven't gotten around to it yet. I hear it's very, very hard to get into, but once it clicks, it's amazing. Yeah, I, it's it's something that I, I that kind of came out of nowhere um, for me. I, I heard about it, and um, it really got its kind of hooks into me. So mm. if you if you get any time over the next few months, I, I recommend that one. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that that's definitely on the list.
And thank you once again, Dave, for taking the time to talk to me. It was a really, really fun interview and one of the best interviews we had in 2019. Next up, I spoke to Matt Dabrowski, creator of Streets of Rogue, and I asked him, how did you get into the industry? Uh, so, I mean, I kind of wanted to do game development since I was a little kid. Um, my first piece of game development software I got was this, this thing called, um, it's a, it a program called Game Maker, but not the Game Maker people know nowadays. It was from a company called Recreational Software Designs. Um, you can find a bit of information about that on the internet. There's not a ton, but um, it's, so, I mean, like, yeah, I was like eight years old. I was working with this thing, you know, you know, wasn't able to produce a whole lot, Um and uh, then later, I was I was a teenager. I I did some games for this thing called ZZT, which was like um, it was actually the first the first game that um, uh, Tim Sweeney of Epic Games uh, put out ever. That was Epic's first product, and um, it was like sort of a game where you could make you could use it to make other games. And there was a whole community of people making games within this game uh, online. And uh, then just started doing. Indie games. This is before Steam was it was out, by the way. This this was like the late '90s and early 2000s. Um, so there was really no way to distribute distribute an indie game uh, and actually make money off of it, or no no standardized way, anyways. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So um, yeah, after that, I got into the, the games industry. I uh, worked on a, a couple games. I worked on uh, was a tester on World of Warcraft. Uh, and then I was I worked on a game called SimCity Societies, and uh, then I was sort of out of the industry for a while, and uh, you know couldn't couldn't quite stay away. Got the bug again, and uh, um, just started making stuff again, transitioning back into it, and um, eventually lost my job. And that was around the time I was uh, uh, sort of into development of, of Streets of Rogue, and I was just like, I think I'm just going to keep doing this. I'll just live off savings, and um, and uh, yeah, so that's 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 uh, I guess where we are right now. What advice would you give to someone um, if they wanted to get into um, video game development? I'd say like um, I mean, I mean, just uh, don't overthink it too much. There's probably there's there's a lot of like really great resources online right now. I know I know it's incredibly daunting to even think about like just making a game, uh, but if you go to like you know. Get the game game makers website, or uh, there's an engine called Construct Three that's out that's really good. Um, these are probably better alternatives than Unity, by the way, if you're just starting out on on something for your for the first time. Um, you know, if you just go there and you go and do their tutorials and stuff, you can probably have something you know up and running like a little platform or something up, up really really quickly. And you know, it's satisfying to see progress. So you know, I'd say just just uh, just get into it because there's there's no easier time to get into game development than there is now it's it may not be the easiest time to make money in game development uh but uh, if you want to just start and start messing around and have fun then this is a great great time to do it and um, I, I know it's been a busy time with uh, developing uh, streets of rogue um but do you get a chance to play anything in your spare time uh these days no and i've i i'll be honest with you like i was afraid to like See, I, I didn't play any other games for a while because I, I, every time I would start, I would just be like, I should probably be testing Streets of Rogue or something. And then it just led to this thing where I was like, okay, if I start playing a game now, I'll just jinx myself. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I was just getting a little superstitious about it. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to like maybe binging on some stuff pretty soon. I just they, they just announced the Tetris effect on PC right now for VR, which I just, I just bought. I'm really actually kind of stoked about that one. Um, and a whole bunch of, whole bunch of others I've been meaning to play. Um, uh, what is that one about the, there's just a bunch of like rats. It's like, a plague tale. Innocent. Yeah. Plague tale. Yeah. I definitely want to check that one out. Yeah. Um, Bunch of indie stuff as well. I have a giant queue of games that I need to I need to play uh, on my just my Steam library. So yeah, looking looking forward to that. Finally, I spoke to Z from Serenity Forge, and I asked him if he could tell us more about value driven games. 
Yeah, so so I guess the easiest way to describe it is that uh, games are very dominant in in our society. You know, if you look at a kid, they're way more likely to want to play a video game than to read a textbook or you know learn <laughs> anything. Um, so so ultimately, uh, it's 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 almost like um, you know the the things that you learn in games is uh, comprises of a, a ton of what we learn today yeah, in our daily lives. I mean, a lot of people say that what uh, you know uh, the the amount of information that we receive every day nowadays. Uh, it's comparable to the amount of information that you receive back in the dark ages uh, in, in like 10 years during that time. So, so which is kind of nuts. Like that's how much information that we're constantly learning and constantly pushing our boundaries. Um, however, most of that information comes from the media that we uh, consume. It's not like we're reading you know, textbooks about physics and math and just exploring the frontiers of, uh, you know, scientific society. Um, it's that we are receiving information through browsing Reddit or, you know, going to Twitter or, you know, watching a TV show or movie or playing a game. So ultimately, the way I see it is, uh, as a game developer, because of how much power you have um, on shaping society, you have an inherent duty uh, to make sure that the shape that you're creating is is the is the one that the world uh, uh, should be in. Um, what uh, to give an example, one of the ways that we embark on a new project when we talk about it internally is we uh, do the scenario test where imagine if this game came out and this game is now the next big thing. Everyone in the world is now playing this game overnight, and um, and everyone loves it. What kind of effect do we have on society when that happens? Uh, is it an effect that we want to see? Is it a positive thing? Is it, is it something that's actually going to benefit the gamers? Um, and if the answer is no, then it's probably not a project that we want to be a part of. Uh, so that's, I, I guess that's kind of like a simple way to, to look at what we mean when we say meaningful and value-driven games. Uh, that's really cool. It's, it's really interesting because I think both EA and Epic were in London this week being questioned by um, by a, a panel from our government uh, talking about loot boxes and and the addictive uh, nature of games. So it's it's really and I, th I think it's very easy for games to be kind of um, uh, put into a box where people say, oh, you know, they're just that's just a pastime where young kids kind of shoot things and they're learning the, these, these violent um, behaviors and, and things like that. But it's, it's not actually true. There are, there are many video games that have a, a real um, positive contribution to society. Um, I, I know, for, for example, in, in the recent Assassin's Creed games, you can kind of wander around ancient Greece and you can learn um, about history and you know, various things like that. Um, but do you think um, video games can contribute uh, to society other than the, you know, the, the entertainment medium that we're, we're kind of presented with then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, video games essentially already do in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot of things that we do in our daily lives nowadays that aren't, you know, they kind of originated from video games. I think video games, uh, like essentially all of UI <laughs> came from video games. Like just uh, user interface, user experience design. Uh, a lot of these things kind of came from the, the original founding fathers of, of games that, that uh, motivated people to, to push those boundaries. Because um, ultimately, if you think about it, um, video games rely purely on UI UX. There's no such thing as, 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 uh, as true value uh, compared to something like if you're using uh, a camera app for you to, to take a photo of something. You know, like that's, there's, there's a utility uh, that, that, that app serves, whereas a video game ultimately really never serves a, a, a tangible utility. Um, so with that said, uh, on top of that, there's also a lot of different things that kind of shape our society in different ways. Um, like, for example, uh, you know, video games that are designed to uh, be educational. I think that's probably one of the most uh, earliest examples, educational games, although they do have a pretty negative rep because of them not being all that fun a lot of times uh, you know once you remove the fun from the core value of a game uh, and put education there uh, sometimes it kind of turns more into just an interactive textbook rather than a, a game and that that doesn't do a lot of people a lot of good either despite the fact that I, I personally would argue that it actually works really well um, 
And then there are tons of other not so tangible effects. Uh, like earlier, you mentioned loot boxes uh, and being a bad thing. And, and yeah, like I would, I would probably generally agree that there are, there's some stuff that needs to be changed in loot boxes, especially when it comes to younger uh, demographics. Um, however, at the same time, you can also say that loot boxes are actually a w much better version of gambling. Uh, so here's an example. Uh, earlier this year, I was at CES, which takes place in Las Vegas. Um, and uh, I was uh, one of my colleagues uh, had to go to the restroom. So I went ahead and just kind of sat in a casino waiting for him. And I was I watched this guy that came over and uh, and started playing on a slot machine. And he put in a $50 bill and started playing slots. And about 10 minutes later, his money is all gone. And then he's like, OK, cool. I had my fun. And he just left. That's $50. That's like an entire video game uh, worth of money. And I thought to myself, like, wow, like people are still spending money like that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back at the games that I'm playing that has loot boxes or has, you know, some kind of a gotcha system or, a, you know, a slot system. And I thought to myself, you know, I would much rather spend the $50 in one of my games that I'm playing rather than on that slot machine, because at least I'm getting something out of it, even if it's fake, even if it's, you know, like a like a digital piece of equipment. At least uh, I got I, I got like some kind of self uh, satisfaction on that. Whereas this guy literally just threw his money away, and he's never gonna see that again. And he got he probably never was designed to get anything out of it anyway. So so that to me, I feel like yeah, if you compare these loot boxes to modern gaming, yeah, it might be a little bit ethically gray. But if you compare it to you know your traditional uh, casino gaming, it's it's a way better system already as is. So, so I think there's a lot of different like ways you can look at the, the the game industry, and my perspective is generally very positive on a lot of different choices. And, and the games industry is is changed so much. Um, we, we, I guess now the you know one of the one of the business models is kind of free to play, and then um, you kind of you know, buy kind of um, uh, either season passes or microtransactions or um, things like that. Um, mobile games have, have come to the forefront and uh, um, streaming and uh, Twitch streaming and now we've got um, lots of streaming video games um, with Google Stadia coming up soon and Microsoft uh, Project xCloud. Um, what do you see as the, as the sort of biggest change in the, in the video games industry over the last, say, 10 years? Oh, well, 10 years is pretty long. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to think here. Um, I think for the past 10 years specifically, um, it's the rise of indie games. Um, definitely. Um, you know, 10 years ago, if we were looking at 20, 2009, I think, um, you are at the very early onset of the indie explosion where you have your Super Meat Boy, you have your um, Braid, uh, you know, and then some of the earlier like Xbox Live games up there. Uh, Steam is barely a thing at this point. Uh, I think it's a couple years in now, and Steam used to really just be a distributing platform for Valve games, and eventually they added some other games like uh, Red Orchestra, I believe, is one of the first third-party games that they added onto Steam, uh, and then eventually, you know, some of these uh, Humble bundles started uh, coming up as well. You have games like and yet it moves. Uh, you have games like. Um, Word of Goo, you know, these like really early stage indie games that kind of exploded. Um, and, and honestly, as soon as that happened, people, it gave people the thought that, hey, you know, like I can make games too. Uh, and since then, indie games never went away. I think for the longest time, like indies are just like, oh, I can make games and I want to start my own company and I want to be the next EA, which is neat. Uh, you know, EA and Activision were both indie games, <laughs> indie game companies at one point. Um, but then a lot of these people started facing uh, the reality that maybe uh, in order to get to EA, you actually have to be a really good business person, not just to make games. So, so then the indie game industry, I think, shifted uh, more towards where it is today, where uh, there's like, you know, your AAA people and then you have your double A's as well, like your 505 games. Uh, you know, like, uh, and, and then and then you go more down to your uh, triple I games. I, I would like to call it like you know games like Celeste. Uh, you know these are these are more like triple I games where they're not necessarily just a one guy in a basement anymore, uh, but they're still very, they're very high production, but they're still they still have that indie spirit very much so, uh, still with a small smaller team compared to games like Dragon Age. Uh, and then lastly, you have your students who are still in high school that are constantly making their own games. Uh, a lot of times, making games for purely intrinsic values, not even to release it, just making games for fun. Like uh, <laughs> here's an example: a really good friend of mine. His name is uh, Stephen Harmon. 
who by the age of 15 he has already 30 something games released on game show um and uh and recently he uh, so right now he is currently uh, doing his master's degree uh in uh, computer uh, or game design in the uh, usc and recently he made a game about uh how you play as ant-man that flies up the uh, thanos's asshole and <laughs> that's like literally <laughs> literally the game you know a game like that is not made to make money but it but it generates this completely new form of art so so yeah i mean that, I, I would say for the past 10 years that's probably the biggest change in the game industry that's, that's really cool it's uh, i love i love indie games because the the, the the amount of creativity that's in the industry like, like you say uh with the ant-man example there um, and and that that and a game I I played fairly recently was Papers Please, uh-huh, uh, yep. which is which is absolutely wonderful and, and charming. And um, is is there anything out there in the in the wider industry that inspires you at the moment? Is be it kind of um, other games or upcoming trends or other developers? What 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 kind of what what do you look out there at the wider landscape and go wow you know that that's really that's amazing. Yeah, in the recent months, there are two main things that really inspire me, which is going to sound super out of the left field. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about them. Number one, uh, I've been replaying, or not replaying, actually I'm playing for the first time Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo. Oh, and amazing. yeah, and this game is super inspirational to me because I realize just how timeless this game's design is. If you go back and play Final Fantasy VII, which is one of my favorite JRPGs, it doesn't age well, you know. The the, uh, the art is meh. You know, you, you play it purely for nostalgia purposes. For anyone to pick up the game now, obviously, it's not gonna hold. Um, however, if you play Final Fantasy VI, uh, you know, with the pixel art, it becomes timeless. Um, with the game design, it's it's just so easy and under you know simple to understand. And then lastly, also just the the structure of narrative. Um, it's so rare. I I've I don't think I've really seen anything that's comparable to the kind of story. That, that Final Fantasy VI uh, was able to tell, uh, especially with, with such a small budget and d- development team uh, compared to uh, the dev teams that are here nowadays. I mean, if you look back to those uh, NES or SNES games, those development teams are very much the equivalent size of our indie teams nowadays. So it makes a lot of sense for indies to be inspired by those games. So th- that's, that's one of the inspirations that, that I've been uh, kind of following a lot. Uh, and then a second inspiration for the game industry for me is uh, about a year ago, I finally watched Frozen for the first time, the, the film. Uh, and after watching it, I realized that the Frozen is extremely magical and not for the, the plot. I mean, yeah, sure, for the plot as well for, for, for people. Um, but mostly for me, uh, I was amazed at the fact that we had grandparents and little kids below the age of 10. And everywhere in between, you know, people like me who are hardcore movie watching and, you know, gamer, uh, people like, uh, you know, little kids and, and, and my parents and like all of these people can sit together and watch Frozen from beginning to end and everyone got something out of it. That is crazy to me because <laughs> I have never seen that in a video game. I don't think there is a single video game out there in our world right now where anyone in the world can get something out of. You know, you can say that, oh, the most popular game in the world is League of Legends or Fortnite. Um, but not everyone likes that stuff. And in fact, you know, I, would, I, I, can, I can name you a ton of people who hate that stuff. Um, but then you, you also look at the casual market, maybe like, oh, look at Candy Crush or look at Tetris. Not, people just don't get that kind, of, uh, that kind of utility out of games like Tetris and, and Candy Crush. Not like the emotional, emotional engagement like Frozen can, can give to a viewer. So, so to me now, it's like, where do we have to go as an industry? Like it shows that we're so immature still, so such an infant stage, that we still we still haven't cracked that yet. Like there's so much more for us to do as a game developer, um, that that there's you know the sky's the limit. That's awesome. So we we need to find the frozen of video games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we've we've talked a little bit about some of the games um, you've you've got coming up and uh, coming out in 2019. We've talked a little bit about your inspiration. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Serenity Forge and your your kind of uh, ethos as a company and, and your your objective as a, as a company. Yeah. So so uh, Serenity Forge, we are a pretty small team. We're currently 14 people here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, we primarily focus on PC and console games, as uh, as it should be apparent. 
Um, however, we are also dabbling a little bit into mobile to see kind of how we can inject a little bit of our culture into the mobile space too. I mean, we're definitely not going after the the typical mobile route uh, for you know how you typically would think of a mobile game. Uh, the way that we approach it is definitely a lot more focused on like premium games, um, games that transfer well onto mobile. Uh, that said, uh, as a company, we focus on creating meaningful, value-driven uh, artistic experiences that change the way that you think, uh, either about uh, our world, our society, people, or even yourself in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, the games that we do uh, generally tries to push the envelope a little bit uh, with everything that we do. Um, we still are very much focused on consumer-facing products. So, you know, we, we make games that uh, aren't, like, you know, being sold into schools. or Although, like, some schools do like to buy our stuff. But, like, it's, that's not our goal. Our goal is still to release our games on PC and consoles and have people play it. And just to make sure that when they do, uh, after they're done playing the game, they are expanding their horizons and they can walk away uh, being a slightly different person than they were before. Um, I like to reference... Uh, Gone Home <laughs> a lot because that's one of my favorite games of all time and I bring up this game in like a third of my conversations in life um, but Gone Home is one of those games that you know it's not a very long game it's like three or four hours total but after I played it I would never stop talking about it and it has made such a huge impact to my life and these are the type of games that I uh, you know we, we like to focus on too. And how, how do you and your team um, go about coming up with ideas for games and, or, or selecting the projects that you work on? What, what's your kind of uh, process as a team? Yeah, we are actually an extremely, I, I would say extremely Darwinian process in how we approach uh, idea generation. So generally, whenever we, uh, whenever we have ideas, by we, I mean like literally individuals inside our team ha has an idea, um, they would pitch it to the company, pitch it to the whole team. And if the rest of the team is excited for the game, then we'll just go work on it. It's like literally, like imagine if someone comes to you with an idea and once you hear it, you can't stop yourself from working on that game because it's so exciting. Uh, those are the games that we generally uh, take on as, as a team. Um, it's, it's, it, all, it always has to do a lot with just like influencing our team's uh, culture to make sure that uh, we're very accepting of all sorts of different ideas. And then ultimately, we pursue ideas that are obviously, well, they have to make a certain level of business sense uh, so that we can still keep the, keep the company running. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we like to push the envelope when it comes to artistic uh, direction as much as possible. That's awesome. And uh, we, with, with Once Upon a Coma and Hubbus Fate uh, coming out later on in the year, I mean, um, what else have you got coming up in 2019? Yeah, unfortunately, um, there's one thing that's pretty big that we can't really talk about yet. Um, so <laughs> I guess that's that. Uh, so we are currently porting one of our existing titles onto consoles uh, that came out only for PC currently. Um, so that's the uh, that's exciting news um, besides the two other games. Uh, and uh, we do have a couple other things that we're working on internally um, that are just way too early. Uh, and we're probably not going to be making any, making any announcements anytime soon. Most likely, maybe like mid-2020. Awesome. So watch this space from Serenity Forge there. Lots hmm. of secret projects in the works. And oh, that, that sounds really good. Um, so I, I mentioned it before with uh, Kingsbird. And I came across your work uh, first with that game on Nintendo Switch. And it, it feels like Nintendo Switch is a, is a really great platform for indie games. Uh, it's got a really nice storefront, um, and obviously you can play kind of games on the go. Um, how has the release of the Nintendo Switch kind of uh, impacted uh, the work that you do at Serenity Forge? The Switch is an amazing platform. Um, it is by far the heaviest investment platform that we have right now. I mean, obviously all of our games are on the PC, but... Uh, Switch is uh, Switch is where uh, I think a lot of um, the industry is at right now. Uh, with that said, um, I'm not going to discredit the uh, you know Xbox and Sony either, uh, especially Xbox. Uh, the Xbox team is uh, just a fantastic group of people to work with. Uh, we love working with them, um, despite the fact that we don't have a lot of uh, stuff currently out. At, you know, as we speak. That is on the Xbox. You know, that's not to say that we don't have some good uh, relations with them uh, going to the future. Um, so, to put it in a little bit of perspective, uh, the 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 Switch 
um, currently uh, is matching, uh, if not uh, doubling, the amount of PC sales that we generally see uh, in our games. Uh, so, and that's you know, it's a game console versus a, a, a thing that's in everyone's household. So that that's just how popular games are doing uh, on Switch, especially uh, since the Switch is the only mobile platform that's currently out in the world. Um, you know, besides a phone. Uh, so if you want to play any kind of console games on the go, uh, the Switch is the only place to do it. Um, therefore, a lot of times it becomes the definitive place to play a lot of indie games. Uh, games like Stardew Valley, uh, you know, it, it's just perfect on the Switch. Undertale, perfect on the Switch. Uh, so so it's, it, it's like, you know, you can either play on a big screen or stuck there for either consoles or, or, or PC, or you can now play it on the go, on a plane, your bed, on the toilet, you know, whatever it may be, uh, on the Switch. So, so because of that, it becomes a, it's just it's just a no-brainer for us to have to support with the Switch. That's awesome, and uh, it's a really interesting time as well. We touched on it briefly with with Google Stadia and Microsoft Project X Cloud, and with Nintendo Switch kind of being, uh, I guess the. the the game console that you can take on uh, the metro or the, or the train or the bus or the plane, um, I guess in, in the not too distant future, we're going to be able to uh, stream our video games to tablets and phones and TVs and all, all that kind of thing. Um, what, what, what's your thoughts about the kind of uh, streaming services future in video games and how that will um, affect, uh, affect a company like yours? Yeah, I think I'm. I take the same stance as what essentially what Xbox uh, stance is on, which is, is definitely a market that is interesting, but it is not a thing that I think I'm I'm interested in uh, completely investing in. So, so one of the philosophies that we like to follow um, is actually after. Um, uh, the the Wells Fargo so Wells Fargo this is gonna sound weird Wells Fargo the bank um, back uh, like when it was formed a uh, hundred plus years ago um, they uh, the founders had an idea and that is we uh, we have to we have to stay with our values and our core competencies as a as a company and technology should only be used to serve to amplify those values not as part of the core values themselves. So, so to, to best explain this, you know, Wells Fargo was one of the first banks in the world to use online banking, I think back in like 1993 or something like that, uh, which was a huge thing and it did the company a lot of good. But they were not an online banking company. They were a good bank to start and then eventually they realized that the technology is there to help them be a better bank. Therefore, they, they used the, the online banking system. Um, I see a lot of game developers look at new hype technologies. You know, at first it was the VR and then AR, uh, and then now like streaming is kind of the next thing. Or and then in between that, there was a, a, a cryptocurrencies, uh, a blockchain technology. You know, like you see these things come and go, and and I think the way that we see it has always been how can we make value-driven, meaningful games, and how do these pieces of technolo technology help us amplify that vision. If they're not really a good fit, we're not going to try to force it to make it work. Uh, and if they actually help our, our uh, achievement a, a lot, then sure, we can go ahead and invest in it. Oh, that, yeah, that, that, that's amazing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. I, I, I definitely think the, the infrastructure sort of around us needs to sort of catch up before... Um, I can certainly see the, the the benefit of the early adopters kind of going in if you've got a you know a, a great internet connection. But for at the minute, especially in the U.S. where you you kind of you're data capped, um, it seems it, it seems like a bit of a far far stretch at the minute. Uh, brilliant. And um, I was wondering, Z. Yeah, I mean, also just to quickly interject on on the fact that you talked about the infrastructure. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I tried a couple of uh, streaming services at E3 this year with uh, some par partners that we've been chatting with. Um, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> there's a reason why I'm not entirely sold. That, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, that's, that's fantastic insight in, into your company. Um, I was wondering, Z, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into the games industry in the first place. Yeah, so so this is a kind of a longer story, so I'll try to try to shorten it. But um, 
essentially, I mean, I, I, I've always been a gamer ever since I was a kid. Always enjoyed games. Uh, you know, I always tinkered with making games. I think I programmed my first game when I was like 10 years old in uh, Quick Basic. Uh, and then kept on doing all sorts of different things like game design, music, art, and all that. But uh, what happened is that when I was 18 years old, uh, I, my first year in college, I was diagnosed with a very severe illness that caused me to be hospitalized. Um, and this illness was so bad that um, essentially for the next two years, I wasn't able to do anything. Um, I was uh, stuck in the hospital, and all I had was essentially play video games. So I started playing all sorts of different games, uh, you know, single-player games like Final Fantasy games that kind of motivated me to go out there and save the world, uh, multiplayer games uh, like World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Minecraft, you know, all these, uh, to go online and make friends and, and meet people, uh, despite the fact that I was trapped in a, in a room. So uh, eventually, over the span of two years, uh, I, I recovered. Um, and I was able to go back in school. However, I looked back and, and thought like, you know, these games, especially like, you know, League of Legends, you know, it's not it's not made to help a dying kid in a hospital. Uh, but in the end, uh, they did. And, uh, and, and they essentially saved my life. You know, what if we start as developers? What if we start making games with the intention to help other people? You know, what kind of power can we unlock there? And that's when I really had the idea to to focus on making games. Um, from that point onwards, uh, it's it's just very easy to have a very strong passion for a goal, uh, for why you want to do what you do. And, uh, and since then, it's just been always been serving as a North Star. I mean, Serenity Forge, as the idea of this game company, started essentially, you know, 10 years ago. And our mission statement, you know, creating value-driven experiences that challenge the way you think, uh, this this statement literally never changed for the past 10 years because uh, we don't need to. That's always been our goal. So, yeah, I mean, that's essentially the short version of uh, how I got started in games. That's, that's, that's an amazing personal story. And uh, um, so if you were to, if, if someone came up to you and said, oh, you know, Z, I've seen you're, you're a great success in video games. How, how do I get into video games? What, what advice would, would you give to someone wanting to get into the industry? Right. Well, first of all, I would disagree with me being a great success in games. Um, that's that's uh, that's kind of a silly notion to think about the the stress that I have to think about every day. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, getting into games nowadays is actually a lot easier uh, than it has ever been. Um, honestly, my best recommendation would be to just start being self-sufficient. Uh, I think as a game developer, um, you have to be very competitive. This is one of the most competitive industries in the world. You know, as a game developer, you have to take such a traumatic, I would say traumatic, uh, pay cut just to be able to work on games. Um, it's kind of like your, you know, your, uh, the Starbucks barista who is pursuing their music career on the side. Uh, like as a game developer, you're, you're essentially going to have to go through that. So the best way to do it is to learn hard skills from the get-go. Hard skills being art or programming. Uh, either become an extremely good artist or become a really good programmer. That's the easiest way to get you in. Um, if, if that's not the case, um, generally you are more of a, uh, a generalist, I would say. Uh, being in that position, you are probably better suited as like a more of a leader role or like a solo dev or works on a small team. Whereas if you specialize in something, go to school for a particular degree that works in games, you're probably better suited for a AAA environment. Um, and then lastly, you know, like if we're looking at really young kids, like middle school, high schoolers who are looking to get in games, Unity is free. Just go download, download Unity. Um, go, go to YouTube and start YouTubing, you know, random uh, videos on how do, how do you make your first game. If you, if you literally search, how do I make my first game in Unity on YouTube, you'll probably get at least 10,000 uh, like videos that you can watch on how to do that. Um, and they'll walk you step by step on how you can create your own game. Um, uh, and, and then if Unity is still a little bit too advanced, there are other tools like Game Maker, RPG Maker, Twine even, uh, uh, that, that you can kind of get into that logic of creating games. So yeah, I mean, that's, those are, that's kind of like in you know, a very condensed version of what I would recommend. Well, that was me talking to Z there and thank you once again for talking to me on this week in video games it was a really really cool chat and I can't wait to see Once Upon a Coma and the other games that are coming out from Serenity Forge really soon 
Well, that's it for this week's episode. If you want to get involved in the show, then email me on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you and what you're playing. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram, so search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. And if you want to support This Week in Video Games content, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games, and in exchange for supporting the show, you get shout-outs, Discord access, exclusive Patreon content polls, special design podcast scripts, and stickers. So if you enjoy This Week in Video Games, then sign up to Patreon. It would be great to see you there. Well, thank you once again for hanging out with me on this special edition of This Week in Video Games. I hope you have a good week, and I'll be back on Sunday, the 15th of September, 2019, But for now, I'll see you soon.